thanks for downloading today's episode. Before the show starts, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to rate and comment on the podcast in iTunes or SoundCloud. The more people who rate us, the bigger we can grow. You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and this is episode 61, where it's all about the brain. We spend lots of time thinking about our physical health, getting in those runs or swims we promised ourselves, or agonizing over the food we shouldn't eat. But how much time do we put into ensuring that our brain is healthy too? My guest in this episode is Dr. Jenny Brockus. It's Jenny's goal to become the Jamie Oliver of brain fitness. She's here to help us better understand how our brain works, how we can take better care of it right through our life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jenny Brockus. Dr. Jenny Brockus, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you. Jenny, we're going to talk about the brain tonight. It's just so mm-hmm. interesting. I've never really thought, until I started reading your stuff, I'd never really thought about brain health. We hear a lot about mental health. Tell us, yep. what is brain health? Well, you're right. We don't think about it much at all. And brain health really is, as it sounds, it's that the health of our brain itself and it's different from mental health, which a lot of people sort of get sort of confused by. They say, oh, Jenny, you're all about sort of anxiety, depression, are you? And I say, well, no, that actually falls under the umbrella of brain or cognitive health, but it's not that on its own. And it's different, too, from physical health, which obviously is about our body in general. Brain health or cognitive health is basically how well we think, learn and remember and it's something that is actually quite important to us in, a, in our daily lives. <laughs> sure is. And yet we pay so little attention to our brains because I think, no, up until recently, we haven't had the information available to us to understand what's actually going on inside our skulls. And secondly, the sort of the impact that sort of making sure that our brain is as fit and healthy as possible, I know that what's possible to, you know, we can upskill our thinking, we can improve our effectiveness when it comes to learning information and retaining it and then being able to recall it at the right time, all these things can actually sort of make a big difference to how well we perform or, you know, run our lives and on our work. All right. Well, you answered my second question there as well, Jenny. I was oh, going sorry. to ask you, no, <laughs> please don't apologize. You're thinking well ahead. Ah, pardon the pun. You, <laughs> you talked about the fact that I was going to ask you, if it's so important, why am I just hearing about it? And you answered that by saying that we're really just starting to understand about brain health. So brain health is about how well we think, learn, and remember. And it's it's a fairly new topic because we're just starting to understand what what have been the big breakthroughs in the last, I don't know, generation, I guess, generation of science that's helped us understand this topic a lot more. Well, the, the amount of information that's, that we've discovered is, is just fantastic. But I think the single most important concept to have come out of all the neuroscience 
is the understanding that we have this massively what we call plastic brain. Neuroplasticity has literally turned our thinking about the brain upside down because when I was at medical school, I was taught the brain was hardwired, incapable of change, and that we were born with a certain number of brain cells and that once we reached maturity, we were all on the slippery road to decline, right. which sounded very horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, that was completely wrong. So neuroplasticity implies that our brain can change or rewire itself in response to changes in our environment, which means that we are lifelong learners. We're never too old to learn. We can always upskill those areas that we recognize we've become a little bit rusty in. And we have this plasticity available to us across our entire lifespan. Although the caveat is it does start to drop off a little bit once we reach the age of 80 plus. That's I can't believe you said 80. I thought you were going to say they're 17, 22, 30 at uh, most. So is, no, no, no. It, is it a myth that we're not as good at learning as we get older? Because my wife and I just drool over our son. He's four. His ability to remember stuff, learn mm-hmm. new things. You know, he he doubles his knowledge every few months, and, and I certainly yes. am not doing that. Is that just because he knows so little, so it's really impressive when when he proves new information and I'm not learning as quickly because I'm so much older and and my head is full of junk? Or (laughs) do we literally stop the ability to learn quickly or at least decrease that ability? Yeah, it's it, that's a very interesting way you've put it. I mean, it's true that, you know, a four-year-old is learning so much because they're curious, they want to understand and make sense of the world. So they're like little sponges mopping up this information rapidly. Now, we reach our cognitive peak at the lofty age of about 24. Wow. So we are at our prime in our mid-20s. So what happens is following that things start to change a little bit. We've still got our plasticity available to us, but as we mature, our speed of processing information starts to slow down a little bit. And it's not until we're probably in our 40s or beyond that we start to notice that that actually showing up in our day-to-day lives, those tip-of-the-tongue moments, those lapses of memory that bug us all the time. And we think, oh, my goodness, what's wrong with my brain? Well, there's nothing wrong with your brain. It's just that you know, we do experience some change as we get a bit older. So explain to me then how I've reached my peak, my mental peak at 24, mm. yet my brain mm. still maintains this plasticity that allows me to, mm. to continue to learn. 24, that seems pretty young to be reaching my peak. It I mean, is. I know, <laughs> say, cricketers and rugby league players reach their yeah. peak at about 24, but that's that's, yeah. that's physical. I was hoping that I was still yet to reach my peak intellectually, but you're telling me I'm on the downhill slide. No, I wouldn't say necessarily on the downhill slide. In fact, many people as they mature, because they develop different interests or hobbies, actually find themselves increasing their plasticity and actually improve their brains in that aspect. So it's the, the old adage, you know, the more you use it, the better it gets. Because with plasticity, what you're doing is you're driving the brain's neurons, we've got 87 billion of them or so sitting in our skull, all looking for the opportunity to form connections with each other. And every time we're embedding a thought or a memory or a new habit, we're creating these new, what we call synaptic connections, which then link together to form or create a neural circuit or pathway. And every time we rehearse or practice that particular thought, we strengthen that pathway. 
And because that's available to us, the more we take in, the more we practice, the better the brain gets. Is that so why? We, do, we, gather, we gather wisdom as we get older, don't we? We always we know we get wise. Jenny, is it is that why I, I read a lot? My listeners are sick of hearing me talk about how much I read. I, I it's one of my real top hobbies. But I always lament how much of it escapes me. I oh. read it. I find it really enjoyable at the time. It, it's it's really interesting. And then yep. months later, years later, I can look at a book and think, oh, I really enjoyed reading that, but I can't remember a single thing from it. But I know right. that if I take a concept out of that book and add it to one of my workshops and develop a slide yes. set that's about those yes. concepts and those books, and I talk about <laughs> it at a handful of workshops, it is locked in there and I can still recall it years later. Is that that's what right. you're talking about? I'm creating those neuro... What, how did you Neural describe circuit. it? Neuro circuits. And because yeah. I'm revisiting that information, then I'm just strengthening right. that pathway and it becomes permanent. That's right. So the more we practice it, the more we rehearse it, the stronger that particular circuit comes. And it's it's like the stuff we learned at school. I mean, most of the stuff we learned at school, we, we can't remember any of it because mm. we're not using it. Yeah. But occasionally, you know, you might sort of be in a conversation with somebody and they'll say, oh, what's the French word for toast or or bread or something? And somewhere in those dark it. recesses, mm. that word will suddenly come up to front of mind. And you think, oh, I didn't know I remembered that. So our brain is really quite clever in that it stores a significant amount of information, which the stuff we access most often is more readily accessible to us. But some of the other stuff, we sort of, you know, it, we, it gets lost in the crowd, so to speak. What you're saying um, there, it kind of makes me think back to the old rote learning that seemed to get yeah. such a bad rap in education. You're making me think maybe it wasn't that bad an idea. And, and teachers in yesteryear were clearly playing on that reality that the more yeah. you connected those neuro paths, the stronger they were and the longer they'd last. Well, you, you probably like the majority of us. I mean, we still can recite our times table because that was what we, one of the things we did learn mm. by rote learning. But I, I don't actually think rote learning is the best way to learn because the science would tell us that it's it's the associations or the links we make between different ideas that actually are better for us rather than just repeating things over and over and over. But it's very true that there are certain items which, you know, especially, you know, periodical table and things like that. You know, I, I really struggled with that at school and I had to learn it by rote because I found it really difficult to learn it any other way. And when you think about our learning structures, even just say, think back to university, I'm not sure about you, but most degrees that I've known about, known of have that lecture kind of structure and then tutorial. Yeah. They're kind of set up that way yes. to make the most of, of those thinking highways you mm. are exposed to a concept in the lecture, and of course, you will mm. not remember it if you don't get a chance to ch talk about it, chat with some colleagues, yes. debate ideas, yes. throw around ideas, and then it's more likely to stick. And that's why we have the tutorials for a couple of hours after we have the lecture. I, I guess we've almost always that's understood right. that, haven't we? That's right. But what we also now understand is that this, it's the information we discover for ourselves that actually sticks even better. So rather than being lectured to or taught, if we're told to go away and look up a particular topic and find out as much as we can by ourselves, 
and then have the class to discuss certain aspects of that. That really helps us to embed the learning more effectively. Yeah, right. You just described the life of a teacher there, Jenny. They often get <laughs> to do that, to think of what they would like to cover in class within a yes. certain realm and go off and yeah. research it and then present it to the group. I spent the first 12 years of my career as a classroom teacher and you do uh-huh. have a little bit of choice that way. And so much of yeah. the stuff that I know well is stuff that I chose mm. to teach. So that makes Absolutely. perfect sense. All yes. right. Well, you know what you've missed. I've just, as we're sitting here talking, I've decided that from now on, when I'm reading good stuff, I'm going to go out of my way to talk to people about it in the time after I read. So that way it will imprint itself in my mind and I won't just lose it because it happens so, it's so frustrating to read something great and then forget all about it. All right. Look, interesting stuff, Jenny. Now, when I look around society, I see lots of people who aren't healthy. I see lots of people who are overweight. The stats back me up. I think it's 67% of Australian adults count as either overweight or obese. If you're talking men, in my demographic, men over the age of 40, we're upwards of 70 plus percent of men in their 40s are overweight. Women are a little bit better. So Mm. if that's the way we treat our body, do we treat our brains in much the same way? Is it safe to say as a society we're neglecting our mental, our brain health as well as we are our physical health? We are. And I mm. think it's it's not because we're essentially lazy. I think it's it's a lack of understanding of what it takes to maintain a healthy brain. And I think what the message needs to be shared is the fact that what, much of what is good for our body is also good for our brain. And in order to keep a really fit and healthy brain, it comes down to lifestyle. Because as a GP, I used to see a lot of people, you know, in, in the older cohort who were, you know, retiring and then developing memory problems or sometimes subsequently going on to develop Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness me. And everybody's scared of that because, you know, it's one thing to get old, but nobody wants to lose their marbles because, you know, we want to sort of keep our brains intact. And while we can't change our genes, we can influence our environment. And the research is so clear on this. If we look after ourselves and our choice of lifestyle, we can have a huge impact on how well our brain ages as we get older. And there was a recent publication put out in The Lancet saying that around 30% of all cases of dementia are essentially preventable. And I just think, oh, my goodness me, we know we should be shouting this from the rooftops. We need to be looking after our brains across our lifespan, not waiting until we retire and then thinking, help, what do I do now? So hang on, that's 30% of dementia cases could be prevented if we were more brain fit throughout our life. Yes. So it's like yes. getting older and having heart trouble because yep. we're not being physically fit through our life. That's right. And it's and it's the same concept. So it's how we eat, what we choose to eat. We know that our choice of food has a huge impact, not just in providing us with essential nutrition, but the impact it has on our mood and our memory and our thinking skills. It's the amount of physical activity we engage in. And this is probably the, the number one key for better brain health, because we're, we're living in an increasingly sedentary society where we often sit you know, for a longer period of time than we do asleep in our beds. And it's also about the quality and the amount of sleep we get on a regular basis and how effective we are in managing our stress. In addition to stretching our mental muscles by staying engaged, staying curious, asking questions, exploring, doing all those other things, and especially in this, you know, the company of others. 
Oh, wow. The things that you just described there, Jenny, are not parallel with physical fitness, but are the same thing as physical yes. fitness. You just talked yes. about thinking about the what we eat, how much I mm-hmm. move and exercise, mm-hmm. how much sleep I get. The mm-hmm. only thing that was different was stretching my mental capacity, staying engaged yeah. and interested in the world around me. So mm-hmm. let me guess, I'm going to take a wild punt here. People who often physically unwell are also brain unwell. Is there a really close link between the two? There's a strong, strong association and it comes down to what we call inflammation in the body. When we're not very healthy, we tend to have higher levels of this so-called inflammation in our system. So high levels of inflammation make us more at risk of heart disease. It also makes us at greater risk of brain disease as well. Wow. Where, where does inflammation come from? What type of people are high in inflammation? Well, it's exactly the sort of people we, you just described where you know they're physically unfit, not doing any exercise, eating the typical Western diet, often highly stressed, poor sleep patterns, and just not looking after themselves. Wow. All right. So what's the perfect diet? We know that Doctors like us to, um, to you know, exercise X number of times vigorously a week or and mm-hmm. eat this and, mm-hmm. and eat that. Tell me mm-hmm. what the perfect diet is for the brain. What, what, what do you uh, recommend, Dr. Jenny? Well, from what I understand from the research, the one diet which is particularly good for brain health is the so-called Mediterranean-style diet, which has been around for some time and I think it's, it's quite well recognised, which is based on leafy greens, lean protein, especially including some oily carnivorous fish like salmon and tuna and herring and mackerel, seeds and nuts, fruits and berries, some legumes because we need more fiber in our diet, plenty of olive oil, a little bit of red wine um, and things like that. Because the research that they've shown, done, sorry, is that people who, who adhere most closely to the Mediterranean style of diet actually maintain their memory and their cognition for longer. So it it makes a big difference by choosing those type of foods. And there was some fantastic research that came out of Deakin University not that long ago, Professor Felice Jacker, who is in, I can never remember if this is the Food and Mood Centre or the other way around, Um, but she looked at the impact of the Mediterranean diet on people who have been clinically diagnosed as having a major depression. And what she and her team discovered was that in this group of people who were clearly unwell, many of whom were having different forms of treatment, this simple addition in one group of changing their diet to be more Mediterranean style based saw a significant reduction in their symptoms to the degree that many of them went into what's called clinical remission, where they actually didn't feel depressed anymore or were able to reduce their medication. Now, she's very clear that, you know, you can't assume that diet's going to fix you up on its own, but clearly it plays a major role in managing our, our mood and our stress. So, wow, um, go figure. Where have yeah. I been? I have never heard anyone before recommend the Mediterranean diet. Am I missing okay. something or is this is this widespread or am I missing something? It's probably because I'm a bit too close to it (laughs) because I'm reading about it all the time and talking to people about it. It's probably my assumption that people are aware of it, but not everybody is. And I think, you know, it needs to be, I mean, we've been having the same public health messages for the last 40 years, you know, eat more fruit and veg, eat more fruit and veg. 
And I think it's it's only now from the, the new research that we're really understanding why it's so important that we should be eating more fruit and veg, because there's so much hype and misinformation out there, especially when it comes to diet. You know, we don't know whether we should be going paleo or vegan or yeah. gluten free and all this sort of jazz. And I think we've overcomplicated it. So if we sort of strip it bare and go back to the basics and the understanding is that we have evolved to be able to digest a wide variety of different foods. And so it is the diversity of foods which is so important and particularly the plant-based foods and particularly making sure that it's a wide variety of different coloured foods as well that makes the biggest difference. All right. Now, before we get talking about the way that the, we can stretch our brain and some particular exercises oh. we can do there and some of the things that we should be building into our lifestyle, tell us, oh. are there periods of our life where we're more susceptible to an unhealthy brain? And like our body, say midlife, when you're busy with kids oh. and career, you let things go. Yep. And then for a lot of people, they never get it back on track. Is it the same thing with our brain health? Yes, it is. And I think you're absolutely right. It's the midlife, which is the critical period. And that's the time when we're under the most pressure because we've got so many conflicting demands on ourselves that the first thing that goes out the window is our level of self-care yes. <laughs> because we're too busy chasing around after everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, And it's interesting, you know, the more, more stressed we are, the less we indulge in those things which actually make the biggest difference to making sure that our brain and body health is maintained. So we're curious creatures in that regard, I think. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. And what about our workplaces? Are our workplaces full of brain joy? Or do we go off to our cubicles every day and just kill a few more brain cells? Yeah, the workplace is an interesting place, isn't it? This place we call work. We, I mean, we spend up to a third, third of, of our lives. lives. A third of our lives are It's crazy. You think, oh, my goodness me. Do you, do you think, Jenny, on, on an existential level, is this what we were meant to do as human beings? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> although, Me neither. Although, I have that thought every day. That, Having said that, I mean, I, I consider myself fantastically blessed because I am working in an area that I am um, really love and I'm so passionate about it because I think it's so important to share the basic concepts with people. So I think the difficulty comes, there are a lot of people who go to work because they have to, not because they love it, because sometimes they might hate their job or they hate their boss or they hate their colleagues. And for them, it's a chore. It's something that just puts food on the table and they just wish they didn't have to do it. And I think for those people, especially, it's a challenge because they're under enormous pressure. Their stress levels are often very high and too much stress is very bad for our brains. What's and worse for, for your brain? Going along mm. to a job that might not be stressful, but is certainly not pushing us. It's mundane and routine and we don't enjoy it. Mm. It's not our passion or going along to something that does stretch us and, uh, you know, it pushes us, but it's also very, very stressful and it puts us under that duress every day. What would you rather your clients doing? I think it depends on the individual mm. because there are some people who really thrive in the pressure cooker environment. Give them more, give them more because they, they actually like it um, and they need that sort of buzz and push to make them to work at their best. And other people would just fall in a heap and just say, no, take me away now. So I think it's about recognizing, you know, what works best for you. 
But it's, it's that balance because you need enough stimulation. We need enough stress to get us out of bed in the morning because if we didn't have any stress, we'd be sort of under the doona forever. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of stress is actually really good for us because it's been shown to elevate our performance. But of course, it's all about managing that balance. And sometimes it's a combination of different stressors, which in combination can tip us over the edge that lead to us feeling that we've lost control, we're overwhelmed, and that's when everything spirals downwards. What are the things that we can do as leaders or managers in organizations that don't cost us production, don't cost us money, but help the people who we work with have a healthier Mm. brain? What are the things that we can build into our routine or the way we lead? I think the first thing is we've bought into the idea that, you know, we can treat our bodies and our brains like machines. And that's a nonsense because we're not. So, you know, remember, we are human. And as humans, we have basic physiological and psychological needs. And if we address those, along with, especially in the work environment, providing the the safety or the environment that nurtures people to make them feel that they belong there, that they're welcomed, that they're valued for their contribution, shown respect, treated fairly, given the autonomy to demonstrate how well they can Mm. do their job, Mm. enables people to thrive. So for me, I feel it's it's so important that leaders should be looking for the opportunity to help whoever's working with them or for them to shine, because that for me is, is the function of a leader, to help others to perform to their very best. And it comes down to providing that brain safe environment and creating really good interpersonal working relationships, because that's why people go. That's why people stay. Otherwise, they've gone. Oh, I really like that. Hey, you just reminded me of, of a book I read recently. It's called If Aristotle Ran General Motors. I may have talked about it on the podcast before. <laughs> it's neither about Aristotle nor General Motors. It's more about if a philosopher was running a current modern-day organization. And and the author of mm. that book, whose name escapes me, fabulous, love him. It's the second book of his I've, I've read. He talks about the four spiritual universal needs, the things that we all need whether it's at work or yes. in our social life or, or anywhere. And it's being unique yep. as an individual. So thinking, hey, I'm yes. different to everybody else. Mm-hmm. It's union mm-hmm. with something greater than ourself, yes. our usefulness to others, and understanding yep. about our life and our work, that it has meaning. And you pretty much just talked about those same four elements there. And I like that. Great advice. Yep. As leaders, we could do far worse than concentrate on that as solely Absolutely. as leaders, the people oh. we work mm-hmm. with to help give them those feelings that we know as individuals they need. It doesn't just help their brain, it helps their well-being, their their physical health as well. Yes, absolutely. All right, now tell me about this age of information. You may have heard of it, Jenny. Have you heard of the internet? I think it's caught on. <laughs> yes, I think it has. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it doing to us, this age of information that we live in? We know We've heard it all before, this unparalleled time of change, this unparalleled time of information. I always hear great stats that I forget about the number of gigabytes created every second of information on this earth. You know, it's it's crazy stuff. Is this helping our brain? Are we just staying more engaged, more elastic, stretching ourselves all the time because of this new information? Or are we deadening ourselves because of the constant influx? 
Well, in some ways, it's been a huge bonus because Mm. we can access information that was never previously available to Mm. us. So in that aspect, it's absolutely fantastic. What isn't so great is that because we have so much information available, we forget that our brain is operating on the current cerebral model 2017, which has a couple of design flaws. Mm. And one of these design flaws is that (laughs) our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain we use for conscious thought, for logic, analysis, reasoning, judgment, those sort of things, and decision making, is actually a fairly small space. It can only hold a fairly limited amount of information at any one time. So if we start dumping more and more stuff in, it quickly overwhelms it. And when the brain feels overwhelmed, it simply goes and says to itself, actually, this is all too much. I'm going home for a nice cup of tea and puts up the the close sign. And so it just shuts down. And what does that look like on on a practical level? What what am I experiencing in life when that happens? Well, often it's, it's... it's, it's it certainly affects our sleep because I don't know about you, but you know if you've got a lot going on in your mind and you've been working hard all day, think, 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 think. You go to bed, you lie down, and your brain thinks, oh, party time, and because it's still thinking because oh. you haven't sort of had the opportunity to slow down yeah. and actually have a few pauses across the day to prepare yourself for proper sleep. So busy brain syndrome, as I call it, is where. You've got too much going on, too much information that your brain's trying to hold on to, and it goes into overload. Oh, and before when you said it just shuts down, it puts the blinds, the shutters down. Yes. What does that yeah. look like in a person? Well, it's like when you've been sort of making lots of decisions all day long and mm. you get to, you know, it's the end of the day, you've got a particularly important decision to make or a particularly difficult problem to solve. You've run out of mental energy. Yeah. You're just tired. Yeah. And when the, when the brain's tired, it just powers down and goes to sleep. So that's why it's, we, you know, the, the old adage, you know, if you've got a really important life-changing decision to make, don't make it when you're tired or at the end of the day. Sleep on it and wait till you've got a bit more energy really helps. And it's the same with, you know, trying to work out a, a, the solution to a difficult problem or a challenge that you're facing. We deal with those far more effectively when we've had adequate rest. So commonly it's you know, the first part of the day that most of us, hopefully, are feeling at our cognitive freshest. Is that why so many people recommend that I wake up first thing in the morning and write my journal and talk about my goals and my vision for myself and make all those wonderful plans in my life? Well, certainly if you're the sort of person who is a naturally who is naturally a morning person and mm. there are probably more of us who do fall into that category than the night owls who spark up at 11 o'clock or one o'clock in the morning, but it's, it's working with your own unique brain. So for some of us, yes, that golden time is after we've woken up in those first couple of hours. For other people, it'll be at a different time. There's no right or wrong. It's just what your brain has you know, decided works best for you. Now, we're creeping up here, Jenny. I'm going to ask you soon about some really specific tips to stretch our brain. But I've just got, mm-hmm. I keep on thinking of new questions because what you're talking about is so interesting. Hey, I'm on this bit of stealthy, silent campaign against TV. It, it is one of my pet dislikes in life, not because TV is bad. There's certainly shows on TV that catch my interest, but I think it's really hurting us as a society. And so many individuals who I know and work with are hurt by TV. They have all these goals that go unfulfilled because they can't make those first steps because they find themselves staying awake till 10.30 at night or 11 o'clock at night <laughs> watching that extra episode of Game of Thrones. And therefore, 
they right. they wake up late in the morning, they hit the snooze button, they start their next yep. day behind the eight ball, yep. all that kind of stuff. Yep. TV has a lot to answer to. As a brain expert, as a thinking expert, those hours of mind-numbing sitting there just with your mouth half open watching <laughs> ridiculous stuff that, you know, as you know, is getting worse, is that making yes. us dumber? Well, it's certainly not making us brighter, put mm. it that way. Um, mm-hmm. And it is it is mind-numbing and it's been shown that, you know, we don't actually engage particularly well with passively watching a screen in that way. And a lot of people, I think, just use it to chill out because it's their form of relaxation and even they're not actually necessarily watching the show. Yeah. It's just that it's on and they're just sitting there because they haven't got the energy or the capacity to do anything else at that particular point of time. So, you know, that's what they've chosen to do. Whereas and I think you're quite correct that, you know, if we do have aspirations and goals and we do want to sort of stretch that mental muscle, it's choosing to do things differently. We, we spend so much time engaged with screens now. I mean, the average person, it said, spends about 10 and a half hours a day looking at some form of screen, um, <laughs> wow. which is exhausting for the mm. brain because yeah. it's hyper stimulating our brain all yep. the time which is why, you know, it's it's recommended that we should sort of turn off all screens about sort of 60 to 90 minutes before we go to bed. And of course, when you're watching a Netflix thing, which is carefully designed to keep you watching it and is. then want to watch the next episode, because that's how it works. Yeah. It's difficult to overcome that, that compulsion, because we're curious, we want to find out what's going to happen next, because all oh, this exciting thing is just about to, to happen. So I think it's up to us as individuals to understand that, you know, we have to determine what we want to get out of our lives. And if there are certain things that need to be achieved or done differently, it's about how you schedule in and make the time because the time won't come to us. We actually have to schedule it in. And I, and one of my key things that I teach people is that to say that, you know, every single day you need to make that important appointment with yourself to do nothing else except think because we get caught up in the busyness of life mm. and so many people say to me, Jenny, I don't have time to think. <laughs> and, I, and that seems crazy because, you know, we're, we're thinking all day long, but we're not thinking in that deeper, quieter, more reflective way that allows us to check in with how we're going, how we're tracking. If we're, we're on the right track, you know, you know they say you climb that mountain to achieve your goals. Well, how do you know that you're on the right mountain to start off with unless you check in first? I couldn't agree more. I love Every word of that. And and I've said many times, you never wake up in the morning and think, geez, I'm so glad I watched that extra episode of Game of Thrones or whatever it is. But you do no, wake up bad. in the morning and think, geez, I'm glad I went to bed early last night and gave myself time this morning to go for a walk or do that reading or write that journal entry or spend time with my kids before I rush off to work, whatever it might be. We always think that. I It just beggars belief for me, this hold that TV has over us. And I think it's just getting Mm -hmm. worse. Hey, look, I've got Netflix. I've got Stan. I have those things. So I understand the power of them, but I just think for Mm -hmm. some amongst us, they are almost trapped by it and find themselves, as I say, going to bed so late every night. And the thing that, that happens as a result is they start every day on the back foot. That's right. And it's what we call a behavioral addiction And I've had some fairly robust conversations with people who say, oh, no, you can't possibly get addicted to things like television or your phone. And I'm saying, well, actually, you can because the brain reacts to those things in exactly the same way as it does when we become addicted to something like gambling. So 
you know, every time we undertake a activity which the brain finds rewarding in some way, it triggers our reward circuitry and leads to this increase in dopamine being released. And every time our brain is bathed in dopamine, it motivates us to repeat that behavior, especially if it's behavior that we can anticipate. So, oh, yes, I'm going to watch the next three or five episodes of whatever series mm, it is I'm going to watch. Something to look forward to. Something to look forward mm, to, yes. Yeah. And I think in addition to the TV, the area that I am concerned with is our level of interaction with our mobile phone. Because as we know, it's not really just a mobile phone. It's uh, it's our portable mini computer that we just have in our back pocket. It's our portal to the world. It is our portal to the world. And, you know, so many, I mean, and I find myself doing it as well. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? No, stop it. <laughs> because, you know, every time we haven't got something to do. Just pull it out and fiddle. We pull it out and we quickly just check what's the latest update, what's happening in the world, what's the latest news. Yes. And we fall into this compulsion to keep checking because of this FOMO or fear of missing out that we, we've created for ourselves. And I think this is diminishing our capacity to stay on task, really develop that skill set to explore new ideas, ways of doing it at a far deeper level. And I think that's the piece that's getting lost you know, in the malay of all this information that we're being, we're drowning in at the moment. Very good, Jenny. I love all that stuff. Massive fan of your point of view. Hey, it's time now. How are we going to, how can I exercise my brain? Look, I know when I want to get fitter, I go for a jog. I do some walking. Mm-hmm. I have a swim. I do some chin-ups and push-ups. We know all that. How do I yep. do the same thing for my brain? Well, certainly that aerobic type of exercise, the huffy puffy stuff, is probably one of the key things to do. So keep doing it if you're already doing it. (laughs) Yep. Because the more you exercise, huffy puffy um, stuff. Huffy puffy stuff. (laughs) (laughs) The more you prime your brain to perform at a higher level. So that's the critical piece. It's about staying curious, looking for new things to learn. So, like, you've obviously got a love of learning and a love of reading. So it's about mixing it up, trying different genres. If you tend to sort of like a particular type of book, such as science fiction, why not try poetry or sign up to do something creative? The more creative we are, the more we stretch that mental muscle too. And so many people say, oh, well, I haven't got any creativity in me. And I just mm. think rubbish. That's not true. It's just a story we've told ourselves because we haven't had the opportunity or taken the opportunity to try something out because it's not about being necessarily good at it. You don't have to be a Vincent van Gogh. But, you know, why not learn how to draw or paint or sing or dance or sign up for a a computer course on university or or do something like that? Anything that's going to stretch that mental muscle so you're doing something new that you haven't done before and expect to actually find a little bit challenging. Mix it up so you're not just doing one thing. And, of course, always take it to the next level. So, you know, it's like if you decide you want to learn a musical instrument like the piano, so you learn how to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. But if that's as far as you get, it's going to become boring quite quickly. So it's all about taking it to the next level. So you increase that stretch. And the other critical piece, I think, is to do something with other people. Mm. Because we're increasingly living in a society where we're operating in little boxes. You might be in a little box at work or you might be in a little box at home. But often we're on our own. I mean, we're interacting with people via our gadgets and our technology and our phones and things like that. But we do need to spend good quality face-to-face time with people because that really engages us as well. So like we were saying before, you know, going out to the theatre, 
know, trying out new things and then talking about it because it shares the information and we glean more insights from what other people have taken in because we that we all take in different things. So what I thought was particularly fabulous about a particular film that I've been to see, somebody else might say, well, I didn't actually agree with that. I thought this instead. So it's, it's about that shared knowledge and ideas that really stretches our mental muscle as well. It sort of makes us more interesting overall. So the more we involve ourselves in different things, because otherwise it, we so easily become a bit obsessed about one thing. I mean, I have to admit, I'm a bit obsessed about brains. <laughs> so I have to look for I other things. I think that's a good thing, Jenny. Sorry? I think that's a good thing, Jenny, your obsession. <laughs> hey, look, that is, so, that is such great stuff. You know, doing stuff with other people. That's why it's so nice to go to the movies with your wife or husband or someone mm. you care yeah. about, watch the same movie, and then have a lovely dinner afterwards and chat about the movie. Yeah. It's been yes. too long since we've done that, my wife and I, kids, mm. of course. We should do that. You've just reminded me. Doing things with other people, even if it's just reading a book that you, someone else you know has read and, and mulling it over or not even the same book, the same ideas something that you share and you can talk through it. It cements those pathways that we talked about before. You remember it, it better yes. and yes. it just increases your brain power because you're having to engage in that kind of, I dare I say, intellectual way. Do something creative. I love this advice. Do a uni course just for the sake of it, just to stretch yourself. And as you say, always take things to the next level. But it's the first mm. thing you said that interested me the most, the exercise that, as you say, the huffy puffy stuff, Oh, yep. you know, I, it doesn't surprise me that they're so closely linked, but I, I wouldn't have guessed that they're so closely linked. And when you look around in life, look, tell me if I'm wrong, this is just anecdotal stuff, Jenny, but the people who are the most switched on that get stuff done have that proactive attitude are usually people who are physically healthy as well. And it's almost yep. as though all of these different parts of our life that we fool ourselves into compartmentalizing sometimes, they really are all connected, aren't they? They are, absolutely, yes. It's so rare that so, you come across someone who is bleeding in one part of their life but has got everything else together. Yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, I think we understand intuitively that it's important to address all aspects of our lives. Mm. But, you know, again, it comes down to, you know, what our current state of play is and what's going on in our lives that we sometimes overlook or defer or put off the importance of addressing them because we get we often get sucked into this vortex of work comes first and family and life comes second. And that's the complete nonsense. We have to address everything in order to be at our very best. When you hear about the story or when you think about the story of health and healthy eating and its mm. journey over the generations, does it fill you with hope that the message, the similar message for the brain will do better and take less time to catch on? Or does it make you worry when you think something as, as tangible as healthy eating has had such a rough road? How can your pursuit succeed? I'm actually very optimistic because I think there's an underlying curiosity. People, I believe, do want to understand a bit more about their brains because it's a final frontier. You know, we've known so little up until relatively recently. And also, while, you know, we've known for a long time, it's important to eat your greens and, you know, do the right thing and eat, eat the right foods. The other science that's now coming out is, is linking our gut health and our brain health very, very strongly to the extent 
that we're now understanding that you know our choice of food will impact you know our health and well-being and how well we think to an extent that we never previously imagined so i think that message will get across because hey if you want to you know do well in life or at work and you want to know what's going to make the biggest difference, then I think people are ready to take these things on board and say, yes, I will do the huffy puffy exercise. I am going to make those better food choices because of the understanding of the impact it's going to have on their ability to think well. It's a compelling message, Jenny. I think we'll leave it there. I I couldn't have rounded it out better myself. Dr. Jenny Brockers, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, David. And that was Dr. Jenny Brockus. I've never really thought too much about my brain and the things I should be doing to treat it well, to keep it healthy throughout my life. The advice she gave was great. But in hindsight, just so obvious to be creative, read a mixture of genres, do a uni course just for the hell of it, engage with other people intellectually, and always keep pushing to the new level. And always keep pushing to the next level. And then, of course, there was exercise. Remarkable how many things are good for our brain and our body. How well do you treat yours? Do you have any goals you've been putting on the back burner? Things in your life you know you should be doing? for the sake of your physical and neurological health. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Jenny on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the principles and theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.